Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Season 6 of The Agile Brand, where we discuss marketing technology and customer experience trends, insights, and ideas with enterprise and technology platform leaders. We focus on the people, processes, data, and platforms that make brands successful, scalable, customer-focused, and sustainable. This is what makes an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advising Fortune 1000 brands on MarTech, marketing operations, and CX, best-selling author and speaker. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that my latest book, Priority is Action, Seven Principles for Better Strategies, Decisions, and Outcomes, is now available. In it, I give ideas and insights for leaders and teams that need to make meaningful progress on their priorities. After all, our priorities are what we do, not what we say we'd like to do. You can find Priority is Action on Amazon or learn more on my website, gregkillstrom.com. Now let's get on to the show. Today, we're going to talk about building better customer relationships while optimizing the customer lifetime value to the benefit of both customers and brands. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Neil Hoyne, Chief Strategist at Google and bestselling author of the book Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. Neil, welcome to the show. Greg, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this with you. Um, Why don't we get started with you giving a little background on yourself um, as well as your role at Google? Sure. Uh, easiest way to easiest way to place it is a lifelong marketer. So about yeah. twenty years working at that intersection behind all the academic research and modeling and building predictions about how people and advertising is going to behave, and then the other half of it is trying to figure out how companies actually do something with it. A lot of companies collect a lot of data; they feel they have data, and there's always that question around ROI to say it's not quite what I expected it to be. And so my life primarily at Google is working with our largest advertisers. So those people that could be spending five or $10 million a year with us up until several billion dollars, trying to answer those questions to say, how do I make more money out of my data? And then from that, looking at different industries and different countries, really looking at how I can take that information, those insights and those principles and make those accessible to all businesses so that they can all use data better. They can all compete and they can all be more successful with it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, that's 
what we're talking about today as, as well. So, you know, we're going to talk about a, a few aspects of your book, uh, Converted. And, you know, I'd like to start with something that's definitely top of mind for me when I'm working with organizations as an advisor uh, as well. And that's putting the right focus on CLV or, or customer lifetime value. I thought I thought you did a great job of covering this in your book as well. But do you mind just at a high level explaining, you know, why is it or why can it be incredibly valuable to put a greater focus on customer lifetime value? Well, let's look at it from a business lens first. Most businesses will look at marketing as a cost. How much did I have to spend to get that sale to happen? But if you think about it, that investment is actually, and it is an investment, is a bit further reaching. When you acquire a customer, you're building that relationship. You're hoping that they not only buy from you, but that they love your product, that they come back to buy again and again and again. And you can really start to look at it almost like cash flows, that we're making an investment to acquire this customer, to have this relationship in hopes and predicting that that customer is going to come back over time and spend not only this month, but next month and the month after. Most companies will only look at this as a single transaction, which means they don't really get to justify that upfront investment. They say, well, we spent a lot of money getting you in for this sale, and then we'll forget about you until you come back and we'll start that process all over again. Lifetime value is that bridge. It's that bridge to say when you acquire that customer, what's the current value of that relationship? How profitable is that person going to be to my business? Did I place my investments in the right people? And when you think about that, it's very similar. And this is how I kind of compare it in the book is less around the business terms and more around the terms of something we're all intimately familiar with, personal relationships. When you meet somebody, you don't expect the totality of that relationship just to be in that moment. We have that conversation and then next time we'll start that relationship all over again. There's some people you connect with that will be meaningful in your life. There's other people that will be great for that transaction or maybe will be a waste of your time. Customer lifetime value is figuring out that relationship for your business, looking at millions of customers perhaps, and saying, these are the customers that I need, that love me, that are going to provide me with so much value and spend so much money. And these are the customers that no matter how much time I spend with them, they're just not going to buy more. And if you know this, then you can choose where you want to invest your time and your resources, what customers you want to pay attention to for feedback, what customers you want to be concerned about if they leave. And if you're thinking about doing outbound marketing and bringing more customers into your business, imagine being able to know what levers to pull or where to hang out to be able to find more people that connect with your business and being able to spend less time with people that won't. And that's really what customer lifetime value is. It's putting a number around that so you can sit and look almost at a spreadsheet and say, these are the customers I really want to lean into and these are the customers that aren't going to do much for me. And that's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I as a marketer, I, I like that because I think it elevates the, to your, to your earlier point, it, it elevates the value of, you know, from a single transaction to a greater potential. Not That's not always the case, of course. There's those, those customers that may buy once and, and never come back. But, uh, you know, I think it, it embraces that potential lifetime value, which, gets marketing away from simply being, you know, to your other point, just simply a cost or um, something we have to get out of the way <laughs> to, to make a sale. And so, you know, I, I'm wondering from your experience, you know, what, what do organizations that have more of a focus on this, this lifetime value versus, you know, solely transactional focus, 
what do they do or you know what what value do they have that others who don't focus on that what what do they gain by focusing on that that clv it's my observation well first of all they're more profitable yeah. um, because they're not wasting time on relationships that won't go anywhere yeah. but from the consumer side it's interesting and you know, let's almost let's almost take that lens from a consumer side if you ever come into a business that seems to get you that understands you, that knows the value of the relationship. Or oftentimes we know the opposite. We may be with an airline or maybe it's a car rental company. Travel's always an easy one to wrap our heads around. We're like, do you know how valuable I could be or I am to your business and you treat me like this? I'll <laughs> take my money and I'll go elsewhere to somebody that appreciates me. Yeah. And that's where we usually see the byproduct of those companies that are just focused on the here and now. No, no, no. I don't care about the future. How much money did you give to me today? How frustrating are you to me today? And then they let you go. The ones that are focused more on the long term often provide better customer service to those customers that truly matter. They understand where to intervene. They know how to build better creatives and better messages. And in other words, they simply connect with you better. We often will look at brands very much, again, like these personal relationships where it's, if you look at market research, you can see people equating brands and products, especially in CPG, to be like, this, this person's like a partner. There was one research study, Diet Coke is like my boyfriend. <laughs> they, these products have roles in people's lives because they connect and for the consumers, they add a lot of value. And for the people producing those products are looking the other way and saying, these customers are spending a lot with us. And so it works really, really well. And so I generally look at it in terms of compatibility. One of the things I talk about in the book is actually an origin story because people say, well, walk me through a company. And I do talk about a company that was started by a Wall Street hedge fund analyst who was curious to say, if I could build any business, who are the people that are going to spend the most money? Yeah. Or to frame the question a different way, who are the people that have the most disposable income? That could spend the most money. They'd have enough. If I could sell, if I could capture them as my customers, then they have plenty more to spend and how easy it will be to grow my business. And so he went through all the data and he found out, well, what product do high net worth, high disposable income Americans buy disproportionately more than low disposable income, low value Americans? Yeah. And one of the signals he found was books. They buy books. And that became the foundation of Amazon. Yeah, to say, yeah. This isn't about simply selling books. This is about building a business that could reach high value consumers. And if we bring those people into our customer base, we can spend more on servicing them. We don't have to worry about shipping costs as much. And to draw the contrast, the reason why I love this story so much is not only is it an aha moment, if you ever wonder why Amazon went into that category, but it's also looking at companies at that time like Borders and Barnes and Noble who almost looked at these companies and said, wait a minute, Amazon has the same products. It's this, this tiny little web startup. They have the right. same products. They don't have the retail footprint. They have to ship books, which are heavy. How are they going to compete? And this was a question to say, we're going to compete by taking your best customers, not worrying initially just about volume. Because if we get the people that aren't just going to buy, I think 60% of Americans only buy one book a year. We don't want those Americans. We want the people that are going to buy lots of books and spend lots of money. Then all of a sudden, the, the economics of your business model change because your profitability is multipliers higher than other people in the industry. And so your common competitors that are looking just at today, the here and now, struggle to see that same view and that same profitability even from the same people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, 
there's a lot there's there's been quite a bit written about this and you know it's clv in general and, and things like this and you know so i'm wondering um i i love the the way the story that you told in the book of, of amazon i mean i think the the way that was framed was so so compelling and and yet you know in retrospect it's one of those things i guess that just seems like oh well you know why didn't others think this way or but you know i think once you hear the story of yeah investing in lifetime value over being super transactional and 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 short term like it's i don't think it necessarily takes a lot to convince people that that's a good way of doing things and yet we're here with so many companies not doing this still right so you know what what do you think is preventing more organizations there's plenty of smart ceos cmos out there that almost know better right but why why what's preventing them from taking more of that approach I'd say there's three steps that everyone goes through the adoption. One is the technical side, which is, can I predict how my customers will behave? Short answer is yes, and it's easier than you think. Long answer is, don't go to Google and search how to calculate lifetime value. (laughs) We make recommendations in the book, but I'm also happy, and Greg, I'll send you some links so you can post it to readers. There are easier ways to do it, but the very first thing is, if you don't make the right predictions, nothing none of the value will follow. Hmm. And I've seen some companies wrap their heads around this and say, 12, 18 months will have lifetime value. It should take you no more than a couple of weeks given where the research and the data is today. And so the first thing is, yes, you can achieve it. Companies often get stuck. We can't do it. We don't have enough data. We're not the right business. That's not true. It's just being able to embrace the right techniques and almost standing on the shoulders of giants of researchers and companies that have come before us to make it happen. Second issue is simply that short-term versus long-term focus. A lot of companies like to talk about long-term, but the reality is, if you have outside investors, if you're a publicly traded firm, you may just have traditional KPIs that focus you month over month. You spend in marketing this month, you want to see the return this month. That is a leadership challenge. That's a leadership challenge to say, can we make that transition? Can we start looking? Can we convince the board that the investments we're making will pay off later on down the line. I'll give you a solution to it, but first I want to get to the third one, and then we'll talk about how the two and three can be overcome. Third one is simply that whenever you change metrics in an organization, when you go from short-term to long-term, I'll be as blunt as I can with you in the audience. Some initiatives win and some lose. You're going to look at some marketing campaigns and products you built and said, I thought this was the best thing in the world. And it turns out not to be the case when you look at the customers they brought in. Right. And because of that, you create almost a group of detractors. If you want to know what limits this idea of digital transformations for most businesses, it's that you have a group of people that say, if this goes into effect, my KPIs, my success, my metrics look worse. My goals Mm. are harder. And those people stand up in the organization to say, we shouldn't do this. We should keep optimizing to the way we've been doing it. I don't like this model. I don't like this math. Now, how do you overcome these? I overcome this not by trying to force a transition. So anybody that says, today, we're going to be a customer lifetime value organization. No. Spend six months educating your organization about what lifetime value looks like. If they start seeing reports and saying, we're spending an equal amount of money with low value customers as we are as high value customers, other people get to ask that question. When you talk about campaign performance, let other teams look and say, Hey, we went into this channel versus that channel, and one brought us better customers. Give them time and space to adapt. 
oftentimes it's the pressure of saying, we're now going to measure you on this. We're now going to judge your performance on this, which causes a friction in organizations to go to a board to say, we no longer want to look at short term. We want to look at long term. It looks like a way out. Oh, so you're not accountable. All right. But if you just educate them and you say, we've started looking at lifetime value. We built the model. We got it done in a couple of weeks. This is a fascinating perspective on their business. All of a sudden, time and time again, I see teams, I see companies, I see boards ask the question to say, well, if this is true, what are we doing with it? And there's no more satisfying answer for me to give them than nothing. And the reason it's so satisfying is because when you tell them nothing, I'm surprised as to how many other people pick it up from there to say, we're not using this data. Well, no, we're a short-term company. Damn it. No, this is wrong. Let's change the organization. And then it's me just pointing the direction and it's the company and it's the teams going that direction on their own. That's the transformation you want. You want the transformation where everybody feels responsible for that change, not simply accountable to it. And so give yourself six months. Once you have that data, just to let other people digest it, to change their programs, to ask their questions. And then you'll be in a better position to make that swap where that transformation will hold without building that resistance from the people who now find their jobs or their efforts to be relatively more difficult. To all the events, marketing, and technology professionals out there, discover how to unlock the full potential of your events and how to use powerful data to unify events and marketing. RainFocus Insight will take place January 30 through February 1, 2024 in Salt Lake City. Insight is a must-attend event that provides a unique opportunity to learn from industry thought leaders and network with your peers, experience inspiring keynotes, role-specific breakout sessions, and hands-on workshops, all dedicated to showing the latest best practices and technologies to amplify the impact of your events. Register today at rainfocusinsight.com and use the code AGILEBRAND, that's one word, AGILEBRAND, for $100 off your registration fee. Can't attend in person? Register for the free virtual experience. Visit Rainfocus Insight to learn more. Before we get back to the show, I just wanted to remind you to hit the follow or subscribe button on your app to make sure you get notified when new episodes of this show are available. Now let's get back to the show. Building on customer lifetime value, you know, another thing that I thought came across really well in your book was this focus on building relationships with customers rather than this kind of siloed view of just trying to get to the next click. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of us focused on, you know, automation and, and getting those clicks, but, you know, kind of losing, losing sight of the, the overall, the overall goal of, of the relationship um, in the process sometimes. So, you know, first for those who haven't read your book yet, can you, Elaborate a little bit more on, on what we mean here, you know, about this, this optimizing for long-term relationships versus clicks. The easiest way to put it is that what made digital marketing so compelling more than 20 years ago was that if somebody clicked, you could measure that and you could say that they bought. That was the easiest way to measure ROI in history. Somebody clicked, I spent a dollar. We use the example, I think the very first Google search ad was uh, somebody buying a Maine lobster. Right. <laughs> you see the money spent, you see the customer buy. How beautiful is that story, especially compared to television and radio and print ads where you're like, well, we, we think people are doing something. We served a TV spot here and sales went up. Now you had direct accountability. What was lacking in marketing was now measurable. But the problem with that story was that it believed that customers were that simple. 
that they came to your website one time and they knew they wanted to buy. And then you just go out there to this large world and say, well, who here wants to click on my ad and buy my product? And what we saw was that customers became more savvy. They started clicking and visiting your site multiple times. A simple retail purchase three or four times. If you're in education, auto, buying a home, a financial vehicle, you are months, hundreds of clicks away. And now all of a sudden that story of one click, one spend no longer makes sense. There's a lot going on in that relationship. And imagine how bizarre it would be to simplify that down to say, well, here's the ad they clicked on and they still bought. And it is remarkably common, I'd say, with more than half of the advertisers today. It's simply, this is what they clicked on last. This is what they saw last and they bought. And so this drove that purchase. And so you're competing now on the opposite side with people that say, you know what, instead of this being, and this is where we started, a single expense to drive a sale, what if this is an investment in earning that customer's trust, in building our brand, getting them exposed to that product? We know it takes more money and more time to acquire customers. We're going to put that expense up front, and then we're going to see how those people come through. And when you think about that, again, going back to our, our individual lives, you have people that are incredibly high value to you in your life. Your life would be phenomenally different if you didn't meet those people. Right. But you also know you don't need to spend money on them all the time. I, I joke occasionally with my wife. I don't know if she appreciates it or not. I say <laughs> when we first started dating, flowers were a regular thing. Now, not as much. Now, right. uh, some, someone joked one time, they're like, because you learned they're not incremental. No, it's just that our relationship has changed to where it's not flowers. It may be a night of watching the kids. Right. And those relationships mature. But imagine how bizarre it would be if you're just doing the same thing over and over or worse. And this is the most dramatic. Imagine if you meet somebody that you've interacted with dozens of times that have bought countless products of yours and you forget their name. Yeah. You don't even know who they are, what they bought. You don't care. You just care. Are you going to buy from me today? And if you're not, I'm moving on. And it's cold and it's calculated. And this is the status quo today. That's, yeah. that's the best thing is that a number of you, if you ever feel, do I ever have a deep relationship with those companies? Some do because they value you for who you are and how much you'll spend. Others, you're just another click that they have to buy from. Yeah. So what is this? For for the companies that are doing it right, you know, doing it well, focusing on long term relationships. I mean, you know, they're still, you know, any even small company, but you know, any large company has siloed teams and channels and you know different potentially different incentive structures and and all those things that kind of they get in the way of lots of things potentially. But you know, when we're thinking about long term relationships. What does it look like for those internal teams working together? Like, what's what's different about them versus those that are just short-term and transactional and, and all that? I mean, structurally, what you'll often see is you'll see teams broken apart. In the old click conversion me methodology, it'll be, here's our display channel. Here's our search channel. Here's our social media channel. All spending money, all fight to say they drove that conversion. And unfortunately, somewhere in the middle is a CMO that gets a report from each of these teams where their contribution to the business's sales are always three or four times greater than the total sales of the business. <laughs> right. And they're stuck trying to figure it out. Be like, okay, no, no, no. It's really, we thought this. And it becomes this arbitrary math. When you look at a customer-oriented business, you'll generally see it's not by channel, but it's by, let's call it life cycle. 
This team is focused on acquisition. All the customers we haven't met before that haven't purchased from us, we want to win, build that brand, earn their trust to get them to buy our products. Once they come in, they're handed off to a development team. All right, we brought these people in. We bought in the best prospects we could. We acquired the best customers we could. Let's see if we can squeeze and develop that relationship a little bit more. And so you go from an acquisition function to one I call development. And development is interesting for two reasons. One is not only are they trying to extract a little bit more value out of the good customers, but they're also going in and forming teams like product and saying, this is what our customer base needs. This is what they're willing to buy next. This is what we offer them to get a little bit more of that share of wallet. This is where we're falling short. And then you have a third team, which is reactive. This is a retention team. Now, this isn't a retention team. And you think about a, a traditional retention business. It's somebody goes to your website and they say, I'm done with you. I want to cancel. Right. Which I guess is great if you have a subscription offering. But everybody else is flying blind to say, do they still love me or not? And in those cases, that retention team is really looking at that lifetime value model and saying, we expected this relationship to go in this direction. It's not. How do we intervene to get things back on track? Do we have to send flowers? Right. Do we have to remind them? A great subscription entertainment company, this is one of the ways they do it. They can wait until people go to their website and say, I want to cancel my subscription. A decision is made. And usually the best thing that they could do at that point is say, please stay with us another month. We'll give you a month free. We're going to give away our margin to keep you, which is costly. You don't want to get into that. And their retention team is so smart. What they do is they look at the total number of minutes used on their service. How many minutes of programming did they watch? And if that starts to decline, that retention team comes in and says, all right, we're going to use display ads. We're going to use email campaigns to remind people of new programming, why they're here, what they love, what they should look forward to, and see if we can keep things on track before they get to that moment where they want to call it quits. Yeah. But to your larger question, you see, they're no longer focused on discrete channels. Here's how we can bombard customers with messages. They're focused on where is the customer relationship right now and what's the right action? What's the right team without overlap? You've been acquired. You're going into development. If you're leaving, then you're in retention. But just we're going to manage these customers and try to keep this relationship going and being as profitable as it possibly can be. Yeah, yeah. So, and obviously at at scale, this is something that becomes, you know, it, it becomes very difficult to manage for, a, you know, a, even a large team, but, you know, a, a small, medium-sized team to, to really be able to do this on a, on a one-to-one -one basis. So, you know, this is where, you know, where does AI come in here? You know, I certainly, I work with a number of organizations using AI in a number of different ways, anything from some of the next best action stuff you kind of inferred uh, about to personalization, but, you know, is, is AI the solution here or, you know, is there, you know, where, where do you see its role playing in this? I mean, right now, candidly, it seems like AI is doing everything. I think I saw some <laughs> cola the other day that was made by AI. So wow. let's, <laughs> AI has a place. That might be too much, but yeah. <laughs> let, let, me, let me break it down on this, but I, I will carve it out to say, even before AI, let's look at machine learning, which is still cutting edge for a lot of businesses. Yeah. Look, at its very core, it's pattern matching. It's yeah. looking at all your customers and saying, why do you get along with these people? And it's looking at other people to be like, why don't you get along with them? And it's finding out what those signals are. And so you're looking at it and you're not trying to guess to say, well, it was people that came from this channel or bought this product. You may have hundreds, if not thousands of signals. But using machine learning to say, 
These are the people you really get along with. These are the levers that you can pull on that are going to bring more of those great customers in. These are the places you should hang out. These are the things you should say to these great people to bring them in. And these are the things you should avoid unless you want to bring in some of those poor quality customers. Yeah. Machine learning will simplify the data analysis. But what makes me excited about it, and this again, AI, I think will become a little bit more proactive with it, is that we expect these signals to change. What appeals to consumers today will inevitably change tomorrow and a week from now about what they really like and what they want to hear from based on what your competitors do about how much income they have, the state of the economy. And what's great about machine learning is it can look at these signals and say, this is what you have to do today. This is what's changed about these customers. This is now where they're hanging out. This is now the messaging they want. This is now what's important to them. Is it value? Is it service? Is it price? But it all does this through the lens to say, we're not looking at everyone equally. One example I talk about in the book is around just airline passengers, around how it's not uncommon if you look at a U.S. domestic carrier that 70, 80% of their revenue is going to come from 10% of the passengers on that plane. Yeah. This is a business class, a first class passenger sitting up front, spending a lot of money or their company's money to buy that ticket. The rest of the people on the plane, we're glad they're filling seats. But if we ask everybody on the plane, what matters to you? The most common answer that bubbles to the top is, well, we care about price. Well, not the business travelers, because again, they're not paying. Yeah. And so we can use machine learning and AI to kind of tease us out to say, all right, mass market, it's all about price, promotions, vacation packages. But if you want these high value customers, if you have some empty seats in the front of the plane, we're not going to use upgrades to give people from coach that seat. Let's figure out, here's the messaging you need to use to bring those people in. And so it takes away a lot of the work where people have to go through the actual data and figure out what's going on. And it pulls everybody back to what I think is the most important about this, is that far too often when we talk about CLV, we can get stuck with the models and the math and we're like, my God, how do I start doing this? It starts with really two pieces. One is, as we said, calculating lifetime value. But two is as a business owner, as a leader, as a marketer, wherever you fall in your organization, writing those hypotheses to say, these are the things we think our business does to create value and stronger relationships. And these are the things we think we do to destroy it. Mm. And then letting AI and ML mine through that data or handing it over to your data scientists and to say, here's my hypothesis from working in business. Can you prove or disprove this hypothesis? And the big thing that's changing is now you're not saying, well, we, we think poor customer service is making our short-term transactions more expensive. No. We want to know, is this damaging the relationships we have with our most profitable customers? Because those are a lot harder to earn. And if we don't have them, our business will fail. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is a good segue, actually, to the last thing I wanted to talk about with you. And, and another point of focus from your book is, you know, while the numbers don't lie, um, you know, there's often some different ways that those numbers can be interpreted. And so therefore, you know, I think when you talk about machine learning, there's probably some implications there on how those the machine is trained even and stuff like that. But at the very least, it gets us away from some of the anecdotal evidence or to your other point before, what is true today may not be true tomorrow or yesterday or, or, or things like that as well. So, you know, what, what are some of the, in your experience, some of the common ways that companies, even though they're well-intentioned, might use data to draw the wrong conclusions. You know, in any organization this happens, 
it's I, I joke that it it's less data driven decision making as it is data driven selling. Hmm. And if you've worked at some of these large companies, you can relate to these almost pre meeting meetings where you're like, all right, this is the VP, this is what they like to see. Yeah, let's build a deck that speaks to them because you have the point that you want to get across. And you share those big numbers as like, this is what we saw. Be like, we saw a sales growth of 15%. And everybody puts kind of that footnote at the bottom that nobody clicks on. And if you did, you'd be like, and the sample size was six people. And we right. only surveyed our best <laughs> friends. And we omitted outliers because their numbers were dreadful. And you get this. And this is part of the culture that unfortunately we wrestle with, which is there are motivations and reasons to lie with data. And it happens in a lot of organizations. This is what I often tell people though. I say it is common to 100% of the businesses that I've worked with. I haven't been in a business, even my current work at Google, where I haven't seen people try to manipulate, even ethically, but present a story behind their data. Yeah. And I don't think it can be overcome. I work with some companies that are like, we want 100% data-driven decision-making. Automation and machine learning can certainly help that, to your point. But I think as a leader, what you have to decide is not how you get perfect decision-making on data, but how do you start to improve those processes in your organization? So how do you share the right incentives? So for instance, with some companies, it's data fluency. Everybody has to be familiar with the methodology. In some cases, they standardize it. Here's going to be the process we're going to use before we present any data so we know everybody's on a playing field. Yeah. We talk about in the book, another approach may be, we're going to bring other people into the room who are subject matter experts to evaluate your claims to bring that honesty. At the end of the day, what any business should go for is not trying to be perfect. Perfect is expensive. And at least as marketers, consumers don't reward perfect. Consumers are more than happy to reward you with their money if you're better than your competition. So it doesn't require perfect decision-making. It just requires better. And so that requires you to say, how do we take a step forward to be a little bit better in terms of how we're reading this data, how we're applying this data, and sometimes just having leaders and organizations that say, this is going to be an area of focus of mine. We're going to be candid. We're not going to judge others based on what they did in the past. But going forward, here are small little tricks that we can do, such as being honest about what the methodology is or having other people in the room to vet your numbers so that we know we're making the best decisions with the data we have. We're still going to have plenty of missteps. But at the end of the day, we feel like we're putting out a better product that better connects with our customers than what our competition can do because they ignored taking on this challenge. And so it's not something I would ever encourage a company to try to solve. I would just encourage companies to say, you can probably do a lot better. And so just look in, take input from your team. Certainly there's plenty of recommendations in the book if that's a place you want to start. But to just say, how can we do this data thing a little bit better than our competition and so we feel a little bit more connected. We have better messaging, better products, better results for customers to trust us. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining the show. One last question. Of course. Uh, before we wrap up here, um, you've given a lot of great insights already. Definitely recommend everybody picks up a copy of your book as well. Um, I just re-listened to it a couple of weeks ago to prepare for this interview, highly, highly recommend it. But you know, what's, what's one next best action that you'd recommend for those out there listening that want to build that, that stronger customer lifetime relationship with their, with their customers, where, where could they start? 
the the easiest play, place that I would say to start is really there's this is let's talk about calculating lifetime value. This is what opens your eyes to it. I'd say first is just get your data together. Now it's not building a data warehouse or some cloud thing, but I advocate really you need three pieces of information. You need the date of a transaction, the amount of the transaction, and some type of customer ID that allows you to actually join together multiple transactions from the same person. That's enough. That's your data. You have that for two years. Congratulations. Your data integration exercise is done. That's all it is. And then once you get that, we talk about in the book, we'll share some links with the readers about different resources you can pull on. I'll give you three or four, depending on how comfortable you are with data and analytics or not, to get you started. And so you can calculate that lifetime value. And what you'll see very quickly, very convincingly, is that you can do it. You can have that prediction. And then the third thing you do is you sit down with your team and you say, now that we know that these customers are more valuable than those customers, let's start asking ourselves internally the questions. Let's make it organization-wide. Why is that? What are our hypotheses? And congratulations, if you take these steps, you now put yourself ahead of 90% of companies that are thinking about this but haven't taken that action. And you've now engaged your company on that transformation to say, we're now all looking at what we can do in our business, regardless of function, to strengthen great customer relationships and to kind of move away from those customers that are just wasting our time. And then the growth comes. It's, it's that easy. Yeah. Great, great stuff. Well, again, I'd like to thank Neil Hoyne, Chief Strategist at Google for joining the show. You can learn more about Neil, Google, and his book, uh, Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts by following the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to The Agile Brand, brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkillstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. While you're there, check out my series of best-selling Agile brand guides covering a wide variety of marketing technology topics, or you can search for Greg Kilstrom on Amazon. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile. The Agile Brand. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.